Welcome, and thank you for joining us for the City Baptist Church podcast. This week's message is from our current teaching series, The Called, God at Work Through His People. In this series, we will follow the lives of Elijah and Elisha, ordinary men who were called to stand for the one true God in a pagan and godless society. We would love to have you join us for a service in person. You can find all the information you need on our website at citybaptist.church. How the transition happened from Elijah to Elisha, the prophet of God in Israel. And uh, Israel at the time, of course, was uh, in a bit of a difficult situation. They had not for uh, almost, almost 200 years now, uh, their kings had not followed God. And so there had always been a prophet. There had always been a remnant around that encouraged people to walk with God and to pursue the one true God. But man, they struggled with a lot of different things. False gods. Uh, Baal, of course, was one of the main false gods that everyone pursued. And, and uh, there was a lot of different Baals as well out of that. Uh, but the current situation, though, was the fact that God had allowed Israel to really be in a weakened state for quite a while. So weakened, in fact, that often many of the countries surrounding Israel would have little raiding parties, if you want to call them that. They would come in and they would go into the country and they'd basically take whatever they could get a hold of, take whatever they wanted. If they needed slaves, they'd take people. If they needed uh, resources, they'd take whatever resources they could. And then they'd kind of go off back to their homeland and leave the area behind them sort of decimated. And so that happened over and over and over again in Israel, just continually happened. And it really was a part, if we look at the totality of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, we understand that it really was God's a way of correcting his people. It was God's way of trying to get their attention so that they would return again to worshiping the one true God. And so many times you read about Israel, you get frustrated, right? I know I would. And God would allow judgment to come, and then they'd confess and be like, oh, God, forgive us, forgive us. And he'd say, okay, you know, you're my children, I'll take care of you. And then they do it again, right? And you're just like, you guys, what is wrong with you? But we do that too, don't we? And we walk and we stray from God and we try to do things our own way and we, we forget about him. And then God allows a circumstance or a situation in our lives that kind of is to get our attention and to bring us back. The verse that I love so much dealing with that is where it talks about how God chastens those that he loves. And God corrects his children because he loves us. That's the reason that I parent the way that I do. It's the reason I correct my children, because I love them. Because if I did not parent my children, if I, not, if I didn't teach them, if I didn't bring them up in the right things, they would be a total disaster. You say, your kids are a mess. Yes, but they'd be even worse. <laughs> even worse if we, weren't, uh, if we weren't parenting them in the, in the right way. And so it's important for us to remember that God loves us, and so he corrects us. And I love that so much. The reason he does is because he loves us. And we can be thankful that God is at work in our lives trying to bring us back to him. And so in Israel, that's what's taking place. There's all of these things happening. There's tragedy. There's trials. All of these things is God trying to get their attention as well. He would always send to them a man of God who would preach the word. Someone who would come and uphold the things of truth and remind uh, Israel that they were to return to him. And Elisha was that man for this time. And God was using him in a very, very unique way. And today, we're going to look at a story in the life of Elisha that for some of you might be very familiar. In fact, some of you, as soon as I start to tell the story, in your mind, you're going to see uh, what is called a flannel graph. Does anyone remember flannel graphs? Maybe some of you went to Sunday school. And in your mind, you're going to see your Sunday school teacher putting up a little a flannel person, you know, on this, on, on this little board. Some of you are like, what is he talking about? It's okay. It's totally okay. It's a kind of an insider thing, I guess you might say. You'll learn about him one day. I don't know. I don't think we have any flannel graph here, do we? Uh, but it's kind of a way of illustrating things in the past 
And uh, I, I remember pastors using flannel graphs, graphs in church. But anyway, as soon as I talk about this story, some of you are going to say, oh, I remember this. And you'll remember something about it. Uh, but the main character today is not Elisha. It's a man by the name of Naaman. Naaman. So as soon as I say his name, some of you are like, okay, I think I know uh, what he's talking about. And so we're going to go through a story uh, in the life of Elisha, but is main, the main character is this guy uh, called Naaman. And in this story, we are going to see a great picture of mankind's quest to find uh, healing for what is ailing them. Is really one of the great truths that we see as well. We're going to see in here how God uses a young servant girl for his glory. And I love stories like this where God uses people, maybe uh, people you wouldn't expect to be used. And we're going to see that here in this passage as God gets the glory through this whole situation. So let's look at 2 Kings chapter 5. And uh, verse number 1 uh, is where we're going to start. And it says, now Naaman, okay, so that's the guy we're talking about. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable. Because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria, he was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. Now, in this first verse here of, about Naaman, we learn a lot about him right here. We learn a lot about him. Let, let's just sort of kind of learn a bit about this guy just in these few words here. First of all, we see that he was a captain in the army of Syria. In the army of Syria, he was a captain. Now, for us, captain, if you think militarily-wise, captain's not as high up as it was in those days. But in those days, to be a captain, I mean, it was pretty much one of the highest ranks that you could get. You had people who worked for you, under you. You had basically a whole army at your disposal. And so he was somebody of uh, influence. It says there in the verse that he was a great man. That's the same word gadol that was used for the, uh, the, the Shunammite women. Remember from before, she was a great woman, someone who had influence. It's the exact same word. So he as well was somebody who had influence. It says that he was a man of character, uh, he was honorable, he was a man of valor, uh, he, ha he uh, had bravery, and an interesting point here that it was through him, look at that, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. Now that right there is a very, very interesting thought that we're not going to talk about today. So you think about that and maybe write it down and go home and look that up and kind of work through that a little bit in your mind. But to me, when I see this, Naaman to me is kind of a guy I'd like to know to be honest with you. Like I see, I read this description of him, I'm like, he'd be, he'd be a cool friend to have, you know? Maybe, maybe some of you have friends who are uh, maybe, I, I don't know, famous. Anybody have famous friends? No, no. okay. <laughs> All right, none of us have famous friends. That's okay. Uh, you know what I mean, but somebody who's maybe in a position of leadership or, you know, and you tell people about, man, I got this friend, he does this or whatever. Like I, for example, have a friend who's a secret service agent in the United States. It's a big secret, so don't tell anybody. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's my roommate in college. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah, so I tell people that, you know. I know somebody on the inside. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, some of you are judging me now, right now. But, uh, um, and so, you know, you know somebody like that. But to me, that's the kind of guy Naaman would be. I mean, he was, he was a great guy. He was honorable, all of these things. He was close to the king of Syria. He had people under his command. But for everything that he had going for him, there was one big issue. There was one big issue, and it's found at the very end of the verse. Lex, hit that slide for the next one there. So I, I highlighted it. He was a leper. So for all of those things that he had in his life, all of the great things that he had accomplished to get to where he was in life, he had one big issue, and that was the fact that he had leprosy. Leprosy. Now, in those days, leprosy was a death sentence, to be honest. It was, a, it was one of the most feared diseases in his day. There was almost a 100% death rate those thousands of years ago. There was no cure for it at all. 
the impact that it would have had on your body, it would have began as sort of a small white, kind of maybe look like dry skin on, on you. At some point, you would find it on your body, and it would seem like maybe it's something that'll go away, but it would eventually spread through your body. Of course, you would lose limbs. Uh, it would leave holes, literally holes in your flesh. Uh, pretty much, they would say that a person who was very far progressed into leprosy would look, I really can't describe it any other way, but how movies portray zombies today. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, just, just a total, ma- just disfigured. It was a horrible, horrible disease. And uh, it was believed, of course, that it was highly contagious. And so in those days, if someone came down with leprosy, if they even began to mention the fact that they thought they had leprosy, I mean, it was instant banishment. Didn't matter who you were, didn't matter what your position was, you were needed to be separated from the rest of the population. And that person would have been taken from their community. They would have been put in a leper colony, perhaps, where they spend the rest of their lives in isolation until they died. It was a desperate, desperate situation. I want you to think about that. Think of the most horrible, quick-acting disease that you can think of in, in, in the world today, and you might get close to what it was like in those days to have leprosy. From the moment of discovery, from the moment of discovery, it would have brought fear to Naaman and to his family. From the moment he showed it to his wife and said, hey, what do you think this is? Now, some of us do that to our wives, right? You know, it's usually just a mole, right? But imagine, hey, what do you think this is? And to see the look on her face as she's just sort of like, ooh, we need to watch that. We need to pay attention. Have you been around anyone with leprosy? Just the mention of the word would have brought fear to their lives, to his family. It would have signaled the end of, to everything that he had worked so hard to achieve. So that's the situation here with Naaman and his family. He had all of these things. He was a great guy, but he had this one big thing in his life. Now, this is where God starts to work now. And this is where God gets involved in his life. So let's look at verse number two. It says, And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. So this is what we talked about at the very beginning. They had gone out and they would brought from Israel there, a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. So we're introduced here to this servant girl who uh, basically took care of or was there for Naaman's wife, which tells us that probably Naaman was the one who had raided her village or whatever and brought her back to his family. Look at verse 3. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, that's speaking of Naaman, would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria? For he would recover him of his leprosy. And then one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. So we're introduced here to this maid. And to me, it's a really interesting look into their family and an interesting look into the situation that was going here. We have this young girl, this captive girl. I mean, today we would say she's a victim of human trafficking is what we would say today. She'd been taken from her home. She had been uh, forced into servitude. Now she's serving Naaman's wife, and I think when we look at this, we would understand if anybody had a right in that household to be excited about Naaman's leprosy, it would be her, right? He's got leprosy, woo! Serves that guy right. That jerk took me from my home, right? Separated me from my family. I'm serving his wife all the time. I have to do whatever she says. Yeah, he's got leprosy. Awesome. Maybe they'll let me go for free because he's dead. He's gone, right? I mean, that's how we would react, right? That's how we would expect somebody to react, but instead what we see is, uh, is, is her revealing her faith in God, but then also it shows of her care for Naaman and for his, his family and for his wife, where she tells him that there is possibly one way that he could be cured. Now think about that for a minute. Just think about the whole situation. 
She, she cared enough about them for some reason. To me, honestly, I really believe that maybe it was because he truly was a good, upstanding guy. Sure, he raided places, but he treated people with respect, and maybe he took care of her. I don't, I don't know what the situation was. But I really believe it was a big part was because of her faith in God. And so she said, if you could go to this prophet, you could be cured. What I want us to see is that she was captive, but she was compassionate. She had the heart, I believe, of every true follower of Jesus Christ, and that is a heart for others to know about the healing power of God, about the one true God, and that's what she reveals here to us. Now, Naaman was out of options, and so when he heard about this, when someone came and said, hey, did you hear what your servant girl said? When he heard about it, uh, maybe for the first time in in a long time, his heart was filled with hope, and so he takes this news to the king. Look at verse number five. So he took it to the king of Syria, and the king of Syria said, Go to, go. Basically, he says, go, man, go. (laughs) Go. I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver and 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 changes of raiment. This, again, shows the kind of man that Naaman was here. He was respected, so much so that when he went to the king and he said, hey, king, you know, I'm dealing with this thing. And the king's like, yeah, stay away from me. You know, (laughs) he says, I'm dealing with this. There's a possibility that I could be uh, healed. And he says, hey, man, go. I don't think it was because he wanted him out of his court. I think it was because, hey, go. Do whatever you got to do. Go and find. He cared enough about it. That shows the relationship between the king and Naaman. And then the amount of money that he brought was enormous. We see this and we're like, okay, all right, that sounds, man, that sounds like a lot of money. Listen, I did the math as of yesterday, the price of gold. You ready for this? So he took with him in gold $2.8 million worth of gold. This is no joke. This isn't like 50 bucks. I mean, $2.8 million in today's uh, version of gold. Silver was another $168,000 worth of silver. Per today's price, I know it changes. <laughs> uh, and maybe less or more today. I don't know. And then the other thing, which I find so funny, that he took 10 changes of clothes, 10 raiments, basically 10 10 outfits is what he took to him. Now, to us, it's kind of funny. Like, hey, man, like, here's two million bucks, and oh, here's like a couple of suits, you know? Like, to us, it doesn't seem that big of a deal, but to them, it was a big deal. Clothing was huge. Most people lived their lives maybe having one change of clothes, honestly, and they would take care of it, and everything was expensive, well-made, but people didn't have, like, today, where you go in your closet, and you're like, which of my 15 shirts do I want to wear today? It wasn't like that at all. I mean, you cared for what you had. And so to bring these clothes in, it wouldn't have just been regular clothes. They would have been uh, what we might call like party clothes, you know, like nice stuff. So it would have been, you know, like a Harry Rosen custom suit, right, for you guys. Or uh, maybe a Christian Duar, uh, uh, you know, gown for the ladies. I don't know. You know, something red carpet worthy. I buy those for my wife all the time. So <laughs> I'm, just, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> She's looking at me like, how does he even know that name? And uh, I looked it up. I looked it up. I typed in expensive dress companies. All right. There you go. <laughs> and there's other ones as well. But uh, just think of it that way. If somebody gave you, you know, 10 of those, you know, red car- Oscar red carpet worthy dresses that are, you know, $10,000, $15,000 each. I mean, this is a big deal. It's a huge deal. In verse number six, so the king wrote this letter. In verse six, uh, six, it says, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel saying, now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he rent his clothes. That's not like rented it out, but he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man does send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. Now, the king of Israel wanted nothing to do with this. Do you see that in there? 
I mean, to me, it's laughable. He's like, he's like, this guy is sending me someone with leprosy, the incurable disease, and he wants me to cure him of his leprosy. You know, like what kind of, what kind of question is that? He says here at the end, he says, see how he seeketh the quarrel against me, meaning, man, this king of Syria, he wants another reason to attack us is what he's saying. You know, he's going to be like, well, I sent my friend, you know, and you didn't heal him from leprosy, the impossible disease, so now I'm going to attack you. I mean, think of the just ridiculousness of this. So the king of Israel is not, is not happy about this. He's, he's, not, he's not excited. That's why he tore his clothes as a show of just like, uh, you know, man, I can't. He had more than one suit of clothes, by the way. He was the king, right? So he probably had a lot, but he, he tore them up. And man, I, I don't want anything to do with this. And then we come to verse number eight. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Why did, you, why did you do that? Why are you sorrowing like this? Then look what he says. He says, let him, that's Naaman, let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. He says, hey, king, let, uh, 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 don't be all upset about this. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to send him to me because I want Naaman to know, this Syrian to know, that there is a prophet of God in Israel. This was not a prideful statement that he made on his behalf. Like, I want to know and come check me out because I got some, you know, I'm the prophet of God. That's not how he was at all. Remember, he's talking about here that there is a prophet in Israel. The idea here is that Elisha saw that there was potential for God to work in this kind of strange situation. He sent to the king, he says, send him over here because he wanted this man, Naaman, to be exposed to a representation of God through the prophet. Here's what he's seeing. To me, I believe he is perceiving that there is a bigger purpose to this leprosy and that God was about to do something in this whole situation. Here's the point I think we can get as Christians today. We should always be on the lookout for opportunities to point other people to God always. That's what Elisha was doing. He saw the situation and he said, hey, this is a good opportunity for me to tell him about the one true God. Because the fact is, is that in every situation, in every crisis, in, uh, in other people's lives and in our own lives, we should be people who are looking for ways to promote the one true God to those that we come in contact with, those that we have influence with. And, and I'll tell you this, it is far easier to do that when you look at other people's situations, right? You ever done that? You ever look at some, some other person's situation and you're like, oh, I can totally see God working in your life, you know, and they're like, uh, what are you talking about, <laughs> you know? It's easy to do for other people. It's harder to see in our own lives, right, when we're going through a struggle, when we're going through an unexpected situation. But the fact is, is that in all situations, God is seeking to get the glory, and so we should be looking for those lessons, so many times in life, I've been through a situation, I'm just like, what is happening to me, right? You know, what is going on? But if I really step back for a moment and I reflect on what's taking place, the truth is, is you can often discover that God is trying to teach you something. Look at your past situations, right? Look at some of the trials that you've been through in your life that you've come through. And now you look back with 2020 vision, right? And you see that and you're like, oh, that's what God was doing in my life. And so we need to even approach situations that are in the, the, that are right happening right now. We need to approach them in the same way and say, okay, how can God be revealed to me in this? How can I reveal God to others in this situation? It's, it's so much easier to look at others, but it's hard when you're facing it yourself. I, I get it. In Isaiah 55, verse 8 through 9, this is a verse that we quote a lot, but it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my, uh, your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, here's the key, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
God's ways of approaching life are always different than our ways of approaching life. Every time. Every single time. And his ways we have to trust because his ways are always higher than our ways. His thoughts are always better than the way that we would look at a situation. I want you to write this down today. God has something in every trial and in every success for us to learn. This is a great lesson for us as Christians to be reminded of, that God has something for us in every success and in every trial. God has something for us to learn. We look for the things in the difficulties, but we need to look for God in the successes as well. When things seem to be going well, uh, when, when uh, you, know, you get that promotion or when you get that, that thing kind of goes your way or whatever it may be, that extra blessing comes along, God is still also trying to teach you a lesson in those things as well. And so Elisha saw this and he's like, hey, this is maybe an opportunity for God to get some glory. And so then we come to 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse number 9. And so Naaman came with his horses, that's plural, and with his chariot. And stood at the door of the house of Elisha. So he comes right up to Elisha's house and he stand, he's there at the door. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and thy flesh shall come again to thee and thou shalt be clean. <laughs> again, imagine the scene here, okay? Uh, Naaman kind of rolls up to his house, you know, chariot, you know, horses are flying, you know, kind of skids to a stop right in front of his house. And he gets out and he's standing there right in front of his home. You know, just think of today, you know, have you ever been out on the street and you see like, you know, 10 Suburbans in a row go zooming by? You know, I mean, okay, something's happening, something important is in there. And so he comes up and he rolls up right to the house and he stops and he gets out and he goes right to the door and then Elisha sends out a messenger to him. Houses were not that big back then, just so you know, okay? He could probably see Elisha through the door, to be honest with you. And so it's, it'd be like the prime minister coming to your house and, uh, you know, standing at the front door, ring the doorbell, and I'd like to speak, you know, with Paul. And then like Maximus, my son, coming to him and be like, yeah, he's kind of busy, you know, come back later. <laughs> you know, and then as he backs up, he sees me like on the couch watching TV, you know. <laughs> he is not busy. Like, what are you talking about? And that's what Elisha does. He sends this servant, this messenger out to him. He doesn't even talk to him. He just says, hey, go and tell him to go to the Jordan River and, uh, and uh, strip down and get in that river and wash himself seven times. Yes, I know it's 24 kilometers away, but it's cool. Just have him go there, get down in that muddy river, and wash himself seven times, and, and everything will be good. Come back if you want to, but see you later. Close the door. That's how it goes. Well, how do you think Naaman responded? Look at verse 11. But Naaman was wroth. <laughs> that means angry. He was ticked off. Use your, your own way of describing anger. He was upset, and he went away. He's like, forget this guy. I'm out of here. What a jerk. And he said, behold. Now, here's a key phrase. He says, behold, I thought. I thought. So he, he, now we're dealing with expectations. He said, behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. <laughs> he had this great idea of what was going to happen, you know. Oh, Lord, and, you know, hit him on the whatever, and he's going to heal him, you know. And then he says this, are not Abana and uh, Farpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. So he was wroth and he had rage. He was not a happy guy. I thought he was going to do it this way, but the answer that he got angered him. This messenger came to the door while I can see Elijah's feet up, you know, in the back there, Elisha's feet up, and, and, uh, and he tells me to go and wash in this dirty river. Damascus rivers are way better. Why would I go out of my way to do this? Forget it, man. I'm not going to waste my time. He thought there was going to be this big ceremony, you know, white robes, you know, fire on the ground, all these things was going to happen. 
and he was going to be healed, he felt maybe that Elisha was just trying to humiliate him. This great leader, you know, go down to the muddy Jordan, all the people to see. In 2 Kings chapter 5 now in verse number 13, And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldest thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith to thee, wash and be clean. Now, I immediately love this servant right here. I think he's great, okay? I don't know if he lost the bet to be the one to go and talk to Naaman, you know? But as he comes to Naaman and he's like, uh, uh, Captain Naaman, you know, can I talk? What, what, what? You know, I'm a little busy right here. What? You know, uh, <laughs> if this prophet had asked you to do some great thing, would you have done it? You know, if he had said that I, I want you to give some great sum of money to a specific charity that I designate, you know, and I'll heal you, would you have done it? Oh, of course I would have done it. If he told you to find some mountain full of wildflowers and run through the wildflowers with your hands and make sure you trickle them with your fingernails, you know, would you have, you know, would you have done it? If he had said to climb the highest mountain, find a mountain goat, clip his toenails, and bring those toenails back down, you know, to him in a bag and, and give it to him in a gold bag, would you have done it? Of course I would have done it. I would have done whatever crazy great thing that he would have done. And so he says then, well, what have you got to lose then? What have you got to lose? Except your pride. What have you got to lose? Just go to the Jordan and let's see what happens. Man, I love people in our lives that speak to us in that way, don't you? People who love you enough, who care about you enough to give you the truth when you don't want to hear it. I really don't think Naaman wanted to hear it at that point. But man, this guy came alongside him and said, listen, here's the reality of things. He saw it from a different perspective. We always need to have people in our lives that we give permission to speak to us in those ways. That we give permission to say hard things to us. If you're the kind of person who locks everyone out so that no one can say anything to you, that's a dangerous place to be in life, to be honest. It's a very dangerous place to live because what you do is you're opening yourself up to just being, uh, just basically being on your own and not having someone to encourage you and to help you with those things. And so uh, that's what is taking place here. He speaks to him. What have you got to lose? So let's look at verse number 14. Then he went down. That's four words in the Bible, but it's a 24K journey. <laughs> so they got all the way there. The whole way he's fuming probably. You know, what am I going to do? He gets there and I don't know how long he stood. I wonder how long he stood at the Jordan River. Just sort of like, man, that is a dirty river. It, it really is. It's kind of gross, <laughs> to be honest with you. But then he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. Look what happened. There was no fire from heaven. There's no fireworks. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Man, don't you love baby skin? <laughs> right? And uh, man, it's so soft, you know, and it's so great. It says here that Naaman, this, this soldier, this man of valor, when he came up out of the Jordan after that seventh time, and I believe it wasn't a moment sooner than the seventh time, but he came up after that seventh time, and it says that he was completely healed, and he was completely uh, uh, removed, the, the leprosy was completely removed from his life. A miracle took place in that guy's body. Only God can do miracles like that. And we see here an incredible miracle in his life. Well, the story's not over. Look at verse 15. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him, and, and he said, Behold, 
Now I know that there is no God in all of the earth, but in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. Now, remember, this is the first time now that Naaman was meeting Elisha face to face. They never met before. Remember, he was in the back doing whatever he was doing. He never met. So the first time that they meet face to face, the first thing that he says to him is not, thank you for healing me. The first thing he says to him is not, I couldn't believe it. I got to the Jordan and, you know, I did. The first thing he said to him was this. Now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. And Elisha, like we talked about earlier, saw that this would be an opportunity for God to get the glory. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened here. He came back to him and he gave God the glory. And he says, I know now that there are no other gods in all of the earth except for the one true God of Israel. Naaman came to Elisha looking for a cure. And God used his search for a cure to show him something even greater. And that was who the one true God is, which is far better to know that than to have any kind of physical healing in your body. To know for sure that Jesus Christ is your Savior, that is the greatest thing that one could ever know. But let's finish the story, verse 16. I got a few more verses, and then we'll we'll hit a couple of points real quickly this morning. But he said, so he said to him, I want you to take a blessing. Elisha said, in verse 16, as the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will will receive none. (laughs) And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman tries to offer Elisha the money that he had brought with him which was not insignificant, okay? But Elisha refused. Maybe the first pastor to refuse a gift, right? There we go. (laughs) Because, but here's why, okay? It wasn't just like a, you understand, it wasn't just like a, hey, pastor, I want to be a blessing to you. Or or, here, prophet, I want to be a blessing. What it was, was he was trying to somehow, uh, possibly he could have been uh, anyway. Uh, We don't really know his heart, but uh, Elisha here refused because he wanted him to recognize that God's favor cannot be bought. Okay? It's not about financial exchanges because no matter how much of wealth we accumulate, it's going to evaporate when we stand before God. And so this miracle was not because of that. Then we come to verse number 17 and 18. A couple of interesting verses here. And Naaman said then, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules burden of earth? So two donkeys of dirt, basically. <laughs> Sorry, it's just, it's, I told you it's a little different, okay? Uh, <laughs> For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. So he says, okay, then can I at least give you two mules burdens of dirt, <laughs> of dirt, and I'm not going to sacrifice any other gods. Okay. But in verse number 18, this is what he says. Look what he says. In this thing, the Lord pardon thy servant. So now he's asking for pardon. This is interesting. That when my master goeth into the house of Rimon to worship there, and he leaneth upon my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. Now, this is a really interesting exchange here. Uh, I think a lot of times when we preach this passage, we don't read these two verses because it's sort of like, what is going on here? Uh, just give you a quick overview so you kind of understand. So what Naaman is asking for, he says, there, I know that there's only one true God now. He says that. And, and then he, the whole thing with the dirt, I don't know if that was his way of, we don't really know what was going on there. We just know, you know, we go from gold, right, to a cup with dirt in it, right? You know, that's dirt now. That's all he's got. He says, here you go. Here's a don- two donkeys full of dirt. Great. Thank you. We appreciate it. Uh, we don't really know what's happening there. I don't know if it's some sort of symbolism thing. But here's what I want you to see, though. He says there's only one God. But then he asks for forgiveness or pardon when he returns to hi- Syria. And here's the reason he asked for it, because part of his responsibilities there, he says, when the king 
uh, goes to the house to worship. Rimon was a false idol. There's a, one of the Baal gods. He says, and he leans upon me. Evidently, he was older, and so he would use him, I guess, to help him get up and down from his worship, like lift him up and, or help him down and lift him up. And so he's asking for pardon um, for him being there because he says, I know the one true God. I'm not going to worship this false idol, but I kind of have to do it. That's part of my duties, I guess, part of my job. I have to go there and I have to be there for the king of Syria to help him up and down as he worships the false god. Now, this is kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? He recognizes the truth, but he's kind of stuck in a bit of a situation. Now, to me, what this shows us is the evidence of his true conversion to the one true God. Because he recognized immediately, he recognized something was wrong with that. And he immediately felt like he needed to ask for forgiveness in that way. And the point that I want us to get, we could, we could dig into that a little bit more. But the point out of this, uh, these verses that I see is that it's amazing to me how God can reveal areas of separation and of, of good works at the moment of salvation, God can show us things right away and reveals things to us. Verse number 19, and he said unto him, go in peace. So Elisha said, okay, you know, I, I'm sure there was maybe a little bit more there, but he understood the situation. And he says, I want you to go in peace, meaning go ahead, you're, it's okay. So he departed from him a little way. Elisha realized that the process of sanctification is a lifelong pursuit. And so you shouldn't be demanding of him right away that he immediately, well, hey, man, don't even go back to Syria. Just move here. Live with us, you know. Stay here in Israel and just totally abandon all of those things. He realized that God had put him there maybe for a reason and God had something better for his life. Uh, there in Syria, maybe to make an impact for the one true God. And so Elisha gave him that grace and realized that he had his whole life ahead of him to grow uh, in, in his walk with God. And the thing is, is that every believer has to start somewhere, right? Every believer has to start somewhere. And God will, some, some believers, when they become Christians right, right away, God reveals to them all sorts of parts of their life that they need to maybe either eliminate from their life, maybe friendships that need to be cut off or whatever it may be, so that they can grow for the Lord. And that happens to so many people so many times. But others, it takes a little bit longer, right? And so the, the point for us really is that as a church, we've always got to be willing to accept people right where they are, right? Right where they are. When they accept Jesus Christ as their Savior and they have a desire to pursue Him, and uh, we, we need to encourage them in their process of sanctification because there's not a single one of us here who's attained a level of Christian that does not require further growth or change. And so he realized where he was at. He recognized that there were some things that maybe weren't right about his life right away. And, and God was doing that work in him, but Elisha still says, hey, I want you to go in peace and let's see what happens in your life. Now, to me, this story is an amazing, uh, an amazing uh, story of God's mercy and power over this disease in the life of the Syrian army captain. But the thing I want to take uh, just the next few moments to, to point out to us is that there's also some very interesting parallels in this passage as, as, as well that I want to point out to us today. And take just a few moments, because in this passage, what I see, it's almost like reading a New Testament passage, because I see a very clear picture here of salvation that can be found in Jesus Christ. So if, if, you'll, if you'll give me just a couple moments, that's what I want to do, is I want to show us some parallels to salvation that we see here in this passage. And I think it'll be an encouragement. I know it was an encouragement to me to see it. I, what I love is you see the thread of the gospel throughout all of the Old Testament. And this is one of those moments where we see a picture of what was to come. And I want to highlight just a few things real quickly. So point number one, and I'm going to read a bunch of verses. So Lex running the screens. He's going to be ready to go as we mention them. But point number one, uh, the thing that we can see here is that mankind is suffering from a disease. 
And so just like Naaman was suffering from a debilitating disease, something that he had no hope over, there was no cure for, uh, mankind as well has a great disease, and that disease is our sin nature. It is sin. In Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12, it tells us, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. Who is that one man? That was Adam. And so by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sin. It passed down from that, uh, that original creation, Adam and Eve, their sin, their rebellion against God. It then became, it started the process of being passed down uh, through uh, mankind to all uh, after that. And so we are born sinners with it. We call it a sin nature. Romans chapter 3 and verse number 23 tells us, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so there is that sin nature within every, every person on this earth, every person born into this world. And that sin is not just there, not affecting anyone. That sin does have an end result to it. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, it tells us, For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. What we have earned for that sin nature is death. That's both physical death as well as spiritual death, separation from God. And so that is the wage of our sin, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Matthew 25 and verse number 46, Jesus said, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. He's giving us a contrast there of those that are with Christ and those that are without Christ. Now, here's the thing about our world today is that like Naaman, man has been trying to figure out a cure for that sin nature for the entirety of mankind. They've been trying to find ways to fix it. They've been trying to find ways to uh, fill that void in their life. And while there may be some temporal happiness, no matter what we try to do on our own, we will never sort out the cure for what is truly wrong, and that is the sin in the heart of man. So Naaman, you know, he had such a good reputation, and even when the truth was presented to him, he says, ah, I could probably do better in Damascus, you know. I could do better at these, uh, these rivers over here. He tried to find another way, and mankind for all of eternity has been trying to find another way to deal with it, but, uh, but it's not about position. It's not about money. It's not about who you know. It's because the sin or, or the cure for the sin of humanity is found in Jesus Christ. And so secondly, in your notes this morning, I want you to write down, we must point others to the cure. We must point others to the cure. In the story, we saw this servant girl who was a captive in the house of Naaman. And in the same way, honestly, we as believers are captive here on this earth, aren't we? We're captive in this earth for right now. But we're not to sit back and find satisfaction in the doom of those around us who do not know Christ. Like we talked about, she could have sat back and been like, see you Naaman <laughs> you know uh you know uh, I don't know what she would have said but she could she could have said that she could have said man good riddance I'm glad he's got leprosy the guy treated me and my family so poorly and unfortunately there are Christians who are that same way man good riddance with this world good riddance with those who don't know Christ man they're just gonna they just all go and just burn in hell and psh, man I'm done with it I'm not gonna listen that's not the heart of the believer okay the true heart of a believer who knows God and knows his love for this world is never to find satisfaction in the doom or the suffering of the unbeliever because we are called by God when we are confronted with the need of this world to point other people to the source of healing. In Acts chapter number one and verse number eight, Jesus said this to his disciples and he left it to the church. He said, and ye sh uh, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And look at this, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. Ye means me. So us as believers, 
We are to be witnesses for God both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth, meaning close to us, uh, a little bit farther away from us, a little bit farther away from us, and then, okay, the whole world, okay, everybody. That's where we're to be a witness. We're to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and, and the local church, of course, we know from Scripture is a great place to build community and make friends, right? I love our church family. I love you guys are my friends. I'm so thankful uh, for all of you, and I love that. But a big part of the church is to train each other and to train believers to be able to go out and be witnesses. That's a big part of it, to go and train others to tell, uh, tell the world about God's love for them and how faith in Christ can heal them from their sin and give them a home in heaven and hope even for this life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 11, Paul said this. He said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That's a very interesting passage there. If you read the whole, uh, the whole chapter in its entirety, in its context, you really get a clear picture of what he's trying to say. And what he's trying to say to us is that we know the ultimate destination for those who reject Christ, don't we? The Bible's very clear about that. Those who, who, who uh, will not turn from their sin, those who will not accept the free gift of salvation, we know what their ultimate destiny is. And so what he's saying here is that because we know that, that terror, we know what is resulting uh, to them, we know what is coming their way, it should be our motivation as believers today to share the gospel then for them, with them. So I, I don't think that there's a single person here today who wouldn't try to save someone that you saw in imminent danger. I don't think so. But yet, many times as Christians, we go day after day after day after day without even approaching the subject of faith, without even bringing up the idea that even we're a Christian in our own lives. And so we're missing the point here. We are not responsible for the results. We know that. But as Christians, there is a responsibility that is given to us to share the truth and then God allow, uh, and then allow God to use his word to work in the life of that person. In Acts chapter 16, one of my favorite stories, I already said favorite today, so never mind. It's not my favorite story in the Bible. Uh, I already said that once. But one, a great story that we see is of the story of the Philippian jailer. And, and uh, Paul and Silas were put in prison, and it's a cool story. I, I, love, I love that story. And, and uh, they were there, and uh, like Christian, they were singing in prison. And uh, I'm joking. He lives in the, I'm, never mind. Uh, but uh, he doesn't, he, he was not in prison that I know of. He has no record. All right, just so you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, but he's, they sang in prison, so they, had a, they made a joyful noise. And so uh, then an earthquake came. You remember all that whole story? An earthquake came, and, and it basically busted everybody out. And, uh, and all of the prisoners were going were gonna to try to escape. And then the Philippian jailer was going to take his own life. Uh, he was going to take his own life because, I mean, if all your prisoners escape, you're, you're dead meat anyway. So he was about to commit suicide. And Paul said to him, he said, do thyself no harm. Do thyself no harm because we are all here. Man, what a great thought. Don't, don't harm yourself. Don't hurt yourself because there are people here for you. And that's what Paul said. He said, don't do yourself any harm. And then, and then when they had an opportunity to speak again with the Philippian jailer there, in verse number 30, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord. Here's the key. They spoke to him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. Romans chapter 10 and verse number 17 tells us, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so that's the process here is as we share the word of God with others, then they begin to understand about who God is and what he has done for them. And they can then develop in their faith. 
in the book of Acts, chapter number 2, uh, verse number 38, um, I'm going to read a few verses there before, and I've got a lot up here. I love this story. This is the Apostle Peter uh, preaching to thousands on the day of Pentecost. He said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So he's, he's confirming that Jesus Christ is God, okay? Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. I don't know what that feels like. <laughs> Actually, I do. You ever experience the conviction of God? It's that, whoa, okay, God's speaking to me. Some of you experienced that maybe even this week. And they were pricked in their hearts, it says, and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do then? We have experienced this in our hearts. What then shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The repentance that he is talking about here is, is the idea of a shift of, of mind, a change of mind and a change of purpose that turns an individual from sin and from self and turns us to God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse number 9, he talks about, Paul as well, talks about the idea of being turned from idols and turned unto God. That idea of repentance. He said your repentance turned you to those things. And this change involves more than just fearing the consequences of God's judgment. Genuine repentance knows that the evil of sin must be forsaken and the person and the work of Jesus Christ must be accepted totally and in singular fashion embraced. Is what he's talking about here. And just as in the parable of the sower, we are to go out as believers sowing the seed of the word of God. Some may fall on hard ground. Some may be snatched away from the devil. But some will fall on soft soil and it'll take root and it'll have the evidences and the works of faith in those people's lives. And so the point is, is that we are to be the ones who are to be sharing the gospel. We're to be the ones that are telling other people about Jesus Christ. And that's what we see here in this picture of this girl. She was in a rough situation. She was captive, but she still was pointing people to God. And for you today, without, no matter what your situation is, no matter what your education level is in the Christian faith or in this world, we can all be pointing people to Jesus Christ. So many times people have said to me, well, when I learn a little bit more about the Bible or when I, when I learn, you know, uh, maybe, a, a, you know, a good, a good thought process of how to take someone through the gospel or when I learn those things. Listen, it's not about a formula, okay? It's not about a formula. It's about us being able to sow the word of God and allow the word of God to take root in the heart because that's what makes the difference, isn't it? It's nothing that, you, there's no awesome presentation that you're going to do. No matter how many you know, like fireballs and you know, smoke and disappear, whatever, you're not going to convince somebody, nor will you do the work of salvation in their life, but we are still to be telling and sowing the seed and leaving the results up to God. And that brings me to point number three. We must point others to the cure, but God saves and makes us new by his grace. It's God who does the work of salvation. Man cannot be saved by our own work or by our strength. Naaman tried everything that he could think of, and I honestly feel that he tried a lot of different things. He probably tried every oil and salve and diet and whatever he could do in those days. And when it took him coming to the very end of himself, and when he humbled himself to the simplicity of Elisha's instructions for healing that a cure then was finally found, it had to bring him to a point of humility an acceptance of that simplicity of the cure. To Naaman, the instruction to dip himself seven times in the Jordan River seemed too easy, didn't it? And that's why he dismissed it. Yeah, it's too easy. It's way too easy. It's too simple. And so many people today, sadly, to them, simple faith in Christ seems too easy. 
It's because they're still trying to figure out a way to pay for their sin. They're still trying to figure out a way to, you know, if I do enough good things that somehow then God, and when I get to heaven, you know, or, you know, we always have this idea of what it will be like, you know, and I'm standing at the pearly gates, you know, and, and God's there with a checkbox, you know, and, and we're somehow going to bring this truckload of good works and say, man, I've been a good guy. I've been a good girl, Lord, you know, can I come in? It's not what it's about. It's not what it's about at all. But it's still so simple, and that's what I love about the gospel. So simple. So many people reject it, though, but God still provided the answer in a simple way. In Romans chapter 6 and verse number 23, we read it earlier. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A gift is something that is given freely, isn't it? If you actually look up the definition of gift, it is something given without expectation of return. And salvation is a free gift that is given to us. There is no payment necessary. But as I've said many times at church, a gift is not a gift unless it is received. It can just sort of hang out there, (laughs) you know, and God says to you, I've provided a way of salvation. I've given my son for you. Here it is. Would you receive this gift? But it doesn't become the gift until you receive that gift of salvation and accept Christ. See, Uh, because the thing you have to remember is that the just penalty for sin, so if we received what we should receive for our sin, it is an an infinite punishment. It is an eternal penalty. And so because we know it's infinite and eternal, the fact is that only God could pay an infinite and eternal penalty. And so what we see in Scripture is that uh, God, of course, in his divine nature could not die. And so uh, God became a human in the person of Jesus Christ. And he took upon him human flesh and he lived among us and he taught us. And then the people rejected him and they rejected his message and they sought to kill him. And when they sought to kill him, he willingly sacrificed his life and he and he gave himself up for us, allowing himself to be crucified. And because Jesus Christ was human, he could die. But because he was God, his death had eternal value to it had an infinite uh, uh, application to our lives. And so Jesus then, when he died on the cross, it was the perfect and the complete payment for our sins. And he took upon himself the consequences that we deserved. And then after that, he resurrected after three days, right? And only because he is God could he be resurrected from the dead. And because he was resurrected from the dead, his death was indeed then sufficient as a sacrifice for our sins. That's how he proved it by his resurrection. He proved to us that his death then was sufficient. If he had stayed in the grave, what do we got? Nothing. We have a man. But he rose from the dead three days later, which proves to us that he actually had the power to pay the penalty of our sins. In 1 John chapter 2, verse number 2, it says, and he is the propitiation for our sins. I love that word. It means the atonement, the completeness. God himself is the propitiation, the atonement for our sins, and not for ours only. He's not, it's not narrow in its focus, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, God has already done the work of salvation, and all that we have to do as believers today, or non-believers, or an unbeliever, which of course, I know many of you are Christians here today, but we're talking about those that are without Christ. All that we must do is receive in faith the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers us, fully trusting, fully trusting in Christ alone as the repayment for your sins. Believing in him, and as John 3.16 tells us, you will not perish. You shall not perish. In Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What a powerful verse for us all to memorize, right? It is not of works. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. 
God provided salvation as a gift. And when we turn by faith and accept that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, it is that faith that opens the door to his complete atoning grace for us. And he is the one who does the work of salvation. That is why Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh to the Father but by me. But by me. Now, I know some of you are thinking right now, I know all of this. <laughs> I can see it. You're all like, some of you just nodding. Yep, yep, this is great. You know all this. Why are you telling us this, Pastor? You know, this isn't Easter Sunday. We'll talk about it on Easter Sunday too, right? Why am I saying all this? Here's why. We have a responsibility to the gospel that's been given to us. We who then know, we who then know God's gift of salvation have a responsibility, have a responsibility to share that truth with the world. And so my question is for us is how are you doing with that responsibility? How are you doing with that responsibility? How are you connecting people to the truth of God's word? We constantly need to be reminded about the desperate situation and conditions of those all around us. And even though for many people, we don't know what they're facing in life. The fact is, is that we have an understanding that those without Christ are dead in their trespasses and sins. And God has given us the responsibility as believers to share the truth with the world, starting with those that are closest to you, I believe. For that, for that, uh, that servant girl, guess who was the closest to her? That family she was working for, they were right there. She didn't have anybody else around her, and so she shared the gospel with those. She pointed them to God. And for us, that's where we need to start. We need to start with our family that doesn't know Christ. Many of us have family that do not know the Lord. We need to start there. We need to start with our coworkers. We need to start with those that we have influence with. And we need to share with them the truth. And, and, we need, and you say, well, I, I'm uncomfortable doing that. I, I get so nervous. And hey, I, I get it too. I get nervous every time. <laughs> every time I talk to people, and I've witnessed to a lot of people, I get nervous every time. But you know, we have great resources like that Done book and, and uh, uh, Paid in Full and some of these books, like little books that you just give to somebody and say, hey, you know, have you ever thought about your eternity with God? Sometimes that's all it takes. It kind of puts them on the right path as they'll read uh, some verses and get connected. You can always pray for the lost, right? You can always pray for God to give you opportunities. I always find when I pray, Lord, would you give me a chance to witness? Guess what? I get a chance to witness. What do you know? <laughs> you know? What do you know? That's one prayer I believe God will always answer. If you're struggling right now with unanswered prayer, just start praying for him to give you a chance to witness, and he'll answer that prayer. Because, see, that's what he desires for us, to share the word with others. And... Um, and to begin to tell those about Jesus Christ. That's what I see here in this passage is that mankind is suffering from a disease. We must be the ones who point others to the cure. And the cure is Jesus Christ. And he's the one who does the saving. And he makes us into a new creature through his spirit. You know, the series is all about people that God have, has used and can use in an extraordinary way. And just like God used this little servant girl who made one, who said one sentence, basically. I wish that he could go to the prophet in Israel and be cured from his leprosy. She said one thing, and it drastically changed a person's life forever. In the same way, that simple question, that simple word, that simple track or invitation to church or whatever it may be, can drastically change somebody else's life for eternity. And that's the greatest thing ever, isn't it? To have the impact in somebody's life for eternity. We've just got to be willing to be used. We hope today's message was a help to your relationship with God. 
To stay connected with us, you can like us on Facebook or give us a follow on Instagram at Van City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will uniquely bless and grow you as you pursue His will for you.